We've looked at the exceptional people who persevered through the storms of life to serve God, to find a faith that was real and true, and to abide in a world that was broken, yet they were people of hope and help. And today we come to the final in this series on the power of perseverance, to look at the perseverance of two men that are very unlikely significant to you in this story. But they are very significant. God has revealed His big plan to you. You know what? You've got a part in it. This story is not simply there to fill in a, a line of history to let us know what's going on. This story is found not only in Mark 9, but also in Matthew 17 and in Luke 9. This is a powerful story of transfiguration. But many people don't realize what was going on there. Why this happened on what we believe was Mount Nebo. Why Jesus took them up there to show them that. Over and over again, the disciples seem to not get it. Uh, he takes these three, Peter, James, and John, who we might call the trustees of the deacons at that time, the, the men that were so significant, and he took them aside, away from everyone else, and he wanted to show them something that was powerful and that was real. Let me suggest to you that the way this begins is very important because the transfiguration moves them in the direction of what is true and right. Because they were caught up in the things of their world. They were influenced by the environment of their being dominated by the Roman Empire and occupied uh, in, in an area that was so contrary to them. Remember that Palestine at that time was more of an Eastern culture. That the Roman Empire was establishing what we th think of as Western culture and Western thought. And yet they came in and changed everything there, yet Jesus is trying to pull the disciples away from that environment and bring them back to what is true. I see the transfiguration giving us some important lessons about Jesus. There's a reason why he did this. He didn't want simply to perform a miracle. He had healed many people. He would raised the dead. He would cleansed the lepers. He had changed lives all over. Some people were changed by their faith, others were changed by the faith of their family members. But here, he goes back. He goes back to something that is pure and unadulterated and very unhuman. He shows them who he is totally and absolutely separated from the flesh. He showed them the beauty of God in his purity, in his realization. But here's the first thing that's said here, and we often forget this. God is greater God is greater than everything. And Jesus being God is greater than all. You know, Simon Peter did exactly what we'd do. He looked up there and when he saw this happening, he said, Lord, we want to build three places to celebrate, three tabernacles here, one to you and one to Moses and one to Elijah. I mean, if Simon Peter wasn't a Baptist on a committee, I don't know who was, he immediately wanted to erect a marker somewhere to remember the event. And he totally missed what was happening. Totally missed it. And I look sometimes at him and I think, we're so much like Simon Peter. We, we see things, we take them in, we enjoy them as we see them, and we don't learn from them. You see, he's looking at Jesus in an amazing way here. It literally says in the Greek here 
that Jesus' face was literally lit up like the sun. S-U-N. It was like he was a bright lamp. His clothes were whiter than any white they'd ever seen. They glowed. They were looking at the majestic glory of God Himself. The question I always ask here when I look at it, and, and, and I'll tell you secondly, Jesus is greater than, than Moses and Elijah. You know that already. I don't think Simon Peter got that exactly. The question I always ask when I look at this is, how on earth did Peter, James, and John look at these two men that when they appeared, they were talking to Jesus. They were carrying on a conversation with Him, probably wanting to know what was happening next because they'd be a part of that. Remember, the reality is Moses and Elijah had not been to heaven yet. They were in the bosom of Abraham. They were there with all the other believers before because Jesus had not purchased their entryway into heaven yet. And I'm sure they may have looked and they said, you know, we've been waiting a long time. You know, when are we going? When are we going to be there? The reality is Moses was removed from Peter, James, and John in this environment at that time by 1,271 years. Think about that. It had been 849 years since Elijah had taken off for heaven. Here's my question today. How did Peter, James, and John know who these two men were? How did they immediately look at them and know this is Moses and this is Elijah? They didn't have pictures. You know, God in His divine presence reveals things that we would not know otherwise. And it's obvious that this had happened. Won't it be a great day one day to talk to Moses and Elijah? To find out about what went on. These two very unusual men whose lives were so different. Yet they were very similar. Moses, the little boy who was set loose in the middle of a crocodile infested river in a basket that his mother made, and she trusted God and, and released him, and he ended up in the hands of a pagan people. Yet God brought his mother back to, to raise him. He became the deliverer of his people. He was able to save. He did so many remarkable things. His miracles are, are the ones that we would love to do and to see and to experience. Yet because of his doubt and his disbelief and, and his inability to wait on God, he didn't get to walk into the promised land with everybody else. Yet God gave him the most remarkable burial of anyone. The angels buried him. And then there's Elijah, the man who was so amazing, the Tishbite who no doubt had depression and he had frustrations with life. And, and it, it is highest experience in his career, calling fire down from heaven to wipe out the prophets of Baal and to prove the true and the living God was, was his God, Jehovah God. Just after that, he walked away into the wilderness, sat down and said, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go. He struggled with depression, yet God loved him so that he cared for him. Through a three and a half year drought, he cared for him through the experience on Mount Carmel and his doubt after that, through his situation before Ahab and Jezebel 
God cared for him. And God loved him so much that he never was touched by death. He had the most remarkable ascension to be with God that anyone could ever see in a fiery chariot pushed by a whirlwind. Yet these two appear there on either side of him, talking to Jesus, demonstrating the reality that Jesus was greater than even the law and the prophets, or Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah were remarkable, and no doubt they're connected forever with our faith. But God wants us to know the center of our faith is not found in the law or in the prophets. It's found in Jesus Christ. And what He did for us that we could not do for ourselves. There's a sound of a rebuke when Peter makes his suggestion. Because immediately when he speaks, God covers the place with a cloud. No doubt protecting them from His presence. And he speaks a word that I think only a principal could speak to a a first-year child in school. He said, this is my son whom I'm pleased. Listen to him. What a scolding. Peter thought he was suggesting something wonderful. He wanted to do something good. He had good intentions, and a lot of people have good intentions. They just don't listen to God first. They learn everything the hard way. God wanted them to know as they stood there on Mount Tabor in that wilderness area with just Peter, James, and John, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and God overlooking them. He wanted them to know that Jesus was a sublime perfection of hope that they had and for them not to miss it. And amazingly, again, Peter and James missed it. I think John got it. I think he understood that Jesus is the center of God's plan. Remember, Jesus had just begun teaching His disciples plainly about His torture and His death and His resurrection. They knew everything. Nothing was hidden from them. Yet like a a young child that's more excited about the day than they are the parents' leadership, they didn't listen. They didn't learn. There's a reason that we have a period of time that goes from 8 to 14 weeks that you go through in training to be in the military. Basic training is not about getting you physically fit, although you do that. It's not about changing your diet and the the way you eat, although that does happen. What it's really about is breaking your will so that you listen to your commanding officer. When he gives you an order, that quickly you'll obey. Because it may save your life and the lives of those that you're with or leading. God is attempting to give to the disciples an understanding of what's going on with His Son. And they're still struggling with the truth. I want you to realize this also teaches us that the gospel is real. It was not a collection of of fanciful stories. It was truth. It was there to change them. Let, Let me read to you what Simon Peter said later on. So you can understand that he did get it 
eventually. In, in, in 2 Peter 1, beginning with verse 16, these are the words he gave to us. He said, we do not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. We ourselves, he said, heard this voice that came from the heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your own hearts, he says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Wow! What an amazing testimony! The testimony that Jesus is glorified and powerful isn't something that Peter, James, and John made up. God let them experience that, to be present and to take it all in. It was the fulfillment of the Old Testament for thousands of years. The idea that Jesus could heal, raise the dead, cast out demons cleanse lepers, be resurrected and glorified, wasn't an invention. It wasn't a mistake. They had it shown and hammered home to them on that mountain that day. They were changed by it. What is your mountaintop experience? What's turned you closer to God and away from yourself? What's made it real to you? Last thing I want to say to you is this, and this is the most important thing. Please, you know, if, if, if you're sitting there trying to figure out what you're going to have as hors d'oeuvres for the game tonight, just put it on hold for a few minutes. What I'm about to say to you is the most important thing you may hear for weeks. Because this is what we need to know from this passage. You are on God's agenda. You're not an observer. You're a participant. You see, Peter, James, and John thought they were brought there to witness something, but no, they were brought there to experience something. Truly, God was looking through the clouds watching them. He didn't speak to Moses or Elijah or Jesus. He spoke to Peter, James, and John. And so He's watching you. We give the invitation a little bit as the instruments begin to play. And Jeff asks you to stand and turn in your hymnal. It's not a time for you to rattle your keys and get your purse together and gather your things up in your pew and get focused on where you're going when you leave. Not at all. It's a time that God looks down into your soul. He listens. 
He wants to hear what's on your mind. He's concerned. I've told you before, and I think it's the most beautiful picture of, of what a church is, is like. Soren Kierkegaard, the young Danish theologian in his 30s, observed that in church, the platform is not the center of what's going on. God is the observer. You're not. No, you're on the platform. I'm leading us in worship. Jeff is leading us in worship. God is watching you. He's not just looking at what you're doing there as you sit there. He's listening to your heart. He's hearing your thoughts. Think about that. Is, is that not terrifying? I had a first grade school teacher, Miss Donaldson, that reminded me a lot of you, Terry. And she could read our minds. And I found out later on, her husband, Dr. Donaldson, was a college professor at Georgia State. And, and, and he told us, he said, let me tell you something, Kitty Donaldson is much smarter than I am. Because she's taught first graders so long, she can look at them and know what they're thinking. You can do that with some kids, can't you? Mainly because we're just real simple at that age. You know, you can kind of figure out what's going on. But God knows the complex mind as well as the simple mind. He knows when you even try to fool yourself. When you pretend to be holy, and yet you know you need cleaning up. You know, we can be a child of God and know we're going to heaven, but we still need to be sanctified. We need to pull our sins away. We need to separate ourselves from attitudes and actions, and sometimes even people that would draw us into sin. We need to understand that, that we've got an obligation. God is watching us. Not to catch us doing something wrong. No, He's forgiven us already through His Son. He's watching us to see that we continue to move closer to Him. God does not take joy in seeing a Christian wreck their lives. He wants us to succeed. But we've got to choose. We've got to say, yes, you are on God's mind. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. That's why you're here. You're not, you're not here simply because it wasn't too cold or too hot for you to get out today. You're not here simply because you got to bed early enough and you woke up and you could come to church. No, not at all. God intended you to be here today because He wants to connect with you and to stay with you as you move forward. One of the people you don't often talk about a lot when you speak of World War II and, and especially the aftermath and the ending of the war is Douglas MacArthur. Many of you remember in history that Douglas MacArthur disobeyed a command from the, the, the man in charge who happened to be a little short guy who was nearsighted and wore glasses that were ill-fitting. His name was Harry Truman. He was the, the fourth vice president of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a man that most people did not even remember his name when Franklin Roosevelt died early that morning in Warm Springs, Georgia. But suddenly this ill-fitted haberdasher whose mother-in-law said he'd never amount to anything was shoved onto the world stage and he was important. And put in a situation where a very dramatic Douglas MacArthur played out a character's role 
really running for president, the presidency himself, was called in and restrained and called back by Harry Truman, the president. Many people write MacArthur off after that, but oh no, you, you don't need to do that. He plays a very powerful role in the ending of things. You see, Douglas MacArthur on September the 2nd, 1945, plays a role that's so powerful. The Japanese were surrendering. And Douglas MacArthur was on the USS Missouri. And he was there to sign on behalf of the President of the United States the documents that, that concluded the ending of the war. Or more purposely, the war in the Pacific with the Japanese. The documents were laid out and the Japanese signed first and then it was MacArthur's turn to sign. It was a momentous occasion. It was one that would go down in history as one of the greatest. But MacArthur did not sign these documents the way anybody had ever signed before. When it came time for him to sign the final document, Douglas MacArthur took his Parker fountain pen and he reached down and he simply signed his first name, Douglas. He stood up and he handed the pen to a General Wainwright who was beside him. And General Wainwright sat down and very diligent, diligently wrote three letters, Mac, M-A-C. And then he turned and he handed the pen back to MacArthur who took the pen and handed it to General Percival who then wrote the word Arthur. Three men signing one man's name. What we forget is MacArthur shared that moment with those two generals, Wainwright and Percival, because both of them had been captured in the war. Both of them had suffered in concentration camps. Both of them had almost died at the hands of the enemy on the other side of the table. But MacArthur realized that he could not take that stage alone for history's sake, because the truth was these two men had persevered and they were allowed to share in the glory of victory. And that, my friend, is the very reason that on that mountain, on that day, Moses and Elijah stood there. Men who were frail, men who failed, men who fell back, men who gave up. Moses was not patient. Moses, who walked into the wilderness one day and looked at God and said, I'm sick of these people griping. I'm tired of it. And God spoke to him and said, Okay, I'll kill them all off right now. And I'll start over with you and your family. And it is said that Moses trembled to his core because he was speaking to the one entity that could fulfill that immediately. And then he begged God. He said, please forgive me. I was wrong. Have mercy on them. Elijah, who went away depressed and suicidal, after he had seen one of the greatest miracles bringing fire down from heaven, what does he do? He begins to cry and weep and because of one woman's threat. He wants to give up. God didn't give up on him. No, God took him 
literally had, had the birds feed him. And the angels ministered to him. And he restored him and he lifted him up. There's a reason why Moses and Elijah were there. Because we are Moses and Elijah. We have our weaknesses. We have our flaws. We are broken. But God says, I picked you because I loved you. Not because of your ability. But because of your availability. You said yes. And I want to bless others through you. So Don't give up. Don't look back. Don't surrender. Don't walk away. Persevere. In your perseverance, lives will go to heaven. People will be changed. And your eternity will be a blessing forever and always. Let us pray. Father, I thank You that You love us. And I marvel at why You do. We're so flawed. We're broken. Many times we're useless. Sometimes we do more damage to the cause of Christ than we give aid. But the truth is, You still love us. You never give up on us. You bring us along. You grow us up. And just like Simon Peter, as frail as we are, You still allow us to share in Your glory. And in that, we stand amazed. But Father, I ask right now that You would speak to someone who's seeking their place in Your kingdom. They want to do more. They want to serve You. They want to fulfill their destiny. Yet they, they don't see it. They know it's there, off in the future. But they need the eyes of faith. Father, speak to them now. And encourage them. Lord, change their heart to trust You in a greater way than ever before. Lord, we trust You. But many times You take us down a road that we've never been down before. And trust is something that is alien to us on that road as anything. Lord, help us to believe You. And Father, speak to the one that has a decision to make today. Whether that decision is to accept the gift of salvation or to come forward and be baptized or join this church or, or simply to say, Lord, I'm going to grow closer to You. Hold me accountable. Lord, speak to someone today and may this be a day of choice and change for them that will change them for etern eternally as they seek to do Your will. In Your name we pray. Amen.